Good morning. Good morning. Happy holiday weekend. See, I'm wearing my festive tie. Last night we had the privilege, some of you know where we live, and uh, Christy and I had the privilege of seeing the whole valley up and down, the whole way from miles this way and that way, fireworks going up in the air for over an hour last night. Yeah, it was pretty neat, pretty neat. Um, We'd like to welcome our online virtual class members, and we have quite a few now that we hear from. In fact, we heard this week from a young man named Billy in uh, Brazil who wanted to express to the class how much he appreciates all that uh, we present and make available that's really helped him uh, in his development. Particularly, he enjoyed our our class that we discussed here in the last few weeks about 1844 and the relevance and significance. Remember that? And he emailed us about that. And I would like to ask the class if they would make a matter of prayer. I'm not going to give you a lot of details, but just the Lord is is presenting some opportunities to open a a few avenues to expand this message well beyond the local circles here. And uh, as those opportunities presented, you can imagine there's been a whole bunch of pushback from other sources that want to shut those avenues down. And so if you would just uh, pray that the Lord would send his agencies in accordance with his will to open up the avenues for this message to go far and wide. There's some, some interesting things happening I'd like to share with you at some time in the, in the future. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning as we study your lesson today, that your angels will worship with, it, with us, our minds will be enlightened, and we will see you very clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly, Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the lesson title this week is John the Baptist, Preparing the Way for Jesus. And if someone would read the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson, starting John is one. John is one of a small group of people whom the Bible says God chose before birth for a special mission. People such as Samuel and Samson and even Jesus himself. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied the ministry of John as one who would be, quote, a voice of one calling in the desert. John's father, Zechariah, also predicted that his son would prepare the way for the Lord. And then, if somebody would read Monday, the first paragraph. The Lord made many predictions about the life of John the Baptist, saying even before John was born, what he could accomplish in his life. This raises the difficult question. Was John predestined to be these things simply because God predicted that he would? In other words, did John have any choice other than to do what God had predicted? Through the, though the question of God's foreknowledge and our free will has challenged theologians and philosophers for centuries, and so we can certainly cannot answer the question right now, we can be sure of one, of one thing. John needed a special preparation for the work he was to undertake. Alrighty, so these two paragraphs have kind of thrown some questions out before us. What do y'all think? He had a choice. Yeah. Sure. Now, everyone has we can't know that right now. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, I was, what did you think about that uh, little parenthetical statement that it's not possible for us to know? Since it's puzzled theologians for centuries, then how could we possibly know? Everybody has a choice. That's God's universe is based on free will, free choice. So um, maybe maybe before we even get into the question, can we think of other Bible examples besides John the Baptist in which the Bible gives us evidence of God calling to someone for, for a particular ministry or task like he did John? Any other examples where God called people ahead of time? John. Cyrus. Cyrus, okay, and, and uh, Isaiah 44, 28 through through uh, 45, verse 13, you're going to find 
God calling Cyrus by name. Uh, in fact, I'll read some of this to you. It says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say to Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I will hold, and to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so the gates will, will not be shut up. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, and I will make all his ways straight. He will re rebuild my city and set my exiles free. God called Cyrus, who was king of Persia. Now, this was 150 years before Cyrus was born, by name. Any, any other examples? Jonah. Jonah. Um, was he called before birth? Oh, you, you're saying before birth. Yeah. That, was, that, that would be uh, Samson. Samson. Others? What about Adam and Eve? Well, you know, we aren't given an indication that... Uh, it certainly had a purpose for them before their creation, no question. No yeah, question. they were called to a purpose, and they, yeah. they chose otherwise. How about Jacob? It says in Romans 9, starting verse 10, Not only that, but Rebekah's, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So here we have three examples, at least four, Samson, John the Baptist, Cyrus, um, Jacob. Well, definitely Christ. Christ clearly was prophesied for a long time before he came about God, God's purpose, no question. Um, what does it mean? Do these stories tell us that God predetermines the course of someone's life? before they're born? No, he just knows what they're going to choose. Other thoughts? You said you had a question about... I don't have a question, but I have a problem with it. Since I've come to the class, I, I understand it, and I've laid the bed in the back of my mind. It's like, God created this world knowing that we were going to, we were going to sin before he created it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and? Well, it just seems like there could have been a better answer than allowing all these people to die and to be some painful death, some, you know, in order to show the universe that he's a just God. It just seems like if he is a God that's all-powerful, there could have been a different way. In what way might that have been? I don't know. He's all-knowing. <laughs> he's the one that knows it all. You mean, there are... I, mean, I think to myself, if I knew before I had a baby that this baby was going to go out and murder people, kill people, and everything, and cause that much pain and agony to other people, would I go ahead and have that baby? I don't think so. But there's a difference. You're not having a baby that's setting the um, standard and principles upon which all life in the universe will run. True. God is creating life under a principle upon which all life in the universe will run. And we can go down two paths. We can go down the path of love, which requires freedom. Or we can go down the path of computer programming, an artificial environment of robots automatons, machines that God makes and programs and controls constantly through his own uh, you know, programming. So it appears on the surface that these beings are operating independently, but they're all just being programmed. There's no, there's no actual free will. There's no love. I mean, these are the two options we have. I know that's the two options we have now. but it's That's the two options God had. There were no other options. Because love cannot live, uh, exist in an atmosphere without freedom, can it? 
if you if you create a computer program and can program it to act in a, a robot, and you program it to say words like "I love you," and even if you can program affect so it goes "I love you" in a tender voice, uh, if it's responding with the program that you gave it, only following the the inputs that you give, is it really love? No, God could do that. He has that ability. But as soon as he does that, as soon as there's not genuine freedom of individuality, then is there really love there? No. So, pre, pre oh, yes. If God had gone that direction and made people to do what he wanted them to do, Satan would have been right. Well, there, no. Exactly. Satan would have never had an accusation because Satan would have been, would have, wouldn't have been free to make an accusation because he'd been programmed to always be loyal. Well, even even if after he created the angel, say when when he was getting ready to create human beings, he it was in answer to the questions that Satan had raised, and so he had to allow. I, I agree with you, but only because he didn't create intelligent beings to be programmed. Because angels were free. If he was going to go that route, he would just program Lucifer and the angels too. And there would have never been a question. We'd have all just been living this artificial life, kind of like the Matrix, where we're not really free. We're just being controlled by some external source. So then, under this environment of freedom, then, does that mean that individuals do have choice in the matter? Or does God actually, when he prophesies something in someone's life, he gives general freedom to most people. But there's a few people, like John the Baptist, that he programs like robots. To actually carry out everything he wants to be carried out in the way he prophesied it would be carried out. Just to prove himself right. Just to prove himself right and make sure it happens that way. Is that how it works? No. No. Hmm. So, what do these texts then tell us about God? Does God call some humans to him and others he doesn't call? Or does God call all humans? The whole race. Any text for that? 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all men to come to salvation. All men. So I think Dean was, was right on a few moments ago when he said these texts talk about God's foreknowledge, his ability to know the future. And where people get confused is when we think that knowing the future is the same thing as causing the future to happen in that way. Now, and, and, and this is where it really gets, if you really think about knowing and future and, 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 and knowledge and what you do with it, God's character starts really coming out in great, great beauty. Imagine we had, uh, you know, Al and I developed a little time machine here and we travel into the future and, and we watch the Olympic Games coming up here in, uh, in August. And uh, we see every gold medal winner for the whole Olympic Games. We watch it. And then we come back today and we, and we now know who will win every gold medal. Do we cause it to happen because we know it? No. no, we're not causing anything. We just know what's going to happen. We're all predestined for heaven. So, so now that we know, however, with our natures and our characters, might we be tempted to go to Vegas yeah. and lay down some money? <laughs> now, of course, that wouldn't be gambling, because gambling is only when you don't know, right? When you know what's going to happen, it's an investment. <laughs> right? Isn't that true? <laughs> but do you notice how we would use that knowledge in self-interest? It'd be about promoting self, wouldn't it? Now think about God actually knowing and not using that knowledge in self-interest. He knew what would happen, and he knew not only that Luther would rebel, he knew not only that man would fall, he knew what it would cost him. And what was it going to cost him? His life. His own life. And he still did it. 
now what kind of what kind of pictures are we getting of God now? Wow, he knows. Can you trust somebody who has that kind of knowledge and doesn't use that knowledge for self-interest? That's pretty awesome stuff. Man, wow. So God calls to everybody. Are people required to respond? No. No, because they're free. So some examples besides Adam and Lucifer in the Bible of people who were called by God that chose not to respond as God had called. Judas, but was Judas called? Or was Judas the only one that wasn't called? Yeah. Everyone's called. But to be an apostle, a oh, disciple. predicted ahead of time that he would... It's interesting. Judas, no question, Judas was called to salvation. And Christ worked for him and worked for him and worked for him. We see him working for him. There's no question. Christ was calling him to repent. There's no question about it. So don't let me throw, throw that off. You're right. He, Okay, um, but he might not have been called. He might not have been called by Christ to be a disciple, though. But he was still called for salvation. Okay, there's Jonah, and there's children of Israel, both. Yes. Well, I, I have a problem with that Jonah story. I've always had a problem. With it. What's the problem? Well, Jonah refused the call, and yet God. Pretty much says you're gonna do it. Yeah, he did. <clears throat> and even after Jonah said reluctantly said, oh, "Okay, I'm gonna go," I mean, he still was just a creep. I mean, he goes, "I knew you were not gonna destroy them. I knew that you wanted to keep your word." And, and so, why do you think God God treated Jonah in that way? See, I think God, in His foreknowledge, chose Jonah purposely. Knowing Jonah would resist. Knowing Jonah would flee to Tarsus and get on a boat. And knowing Jonah, and then knowing that he would bring a storm. Now, maybe God brought the storm. Maybe God didn't. I actually see that maybe Satan brought that storm. You see in the book of Job, when Satan had control, what did Satan do? He brought a storm. And it killed Job's kids. And when Christ was in the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, do you think God was bringing that storm to try and kill the disciples in Christ? Or was Satan whipping that storm up? And Christ stopped it. See, I think that Jonah was God's man. Um, Satan realized he was God's man. Satan wanted to put Jonah out. He wanted to take him out of the picture. Let's, 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 let's take this bishop with my rook. Okay, It's a chess game. Let's take him out of the way. So Satan brings up the storm. God knew that was going to happen. And so Jonah jumps over, and the great fish comes, swallows Jonah, and coughs him up on the shore. Now, imagine you're a couple of fishermen out there from Nineveh. On the throwing your cast and your rods. And, 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 and all of a sudden, you hear this whoosh, 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 and you look, and there's this giant fish swimming up the shore, and plock! And here comes this guy, kind of bleached white for three days in the belly of a whale. A little bit of seaweed hanging from his face. And he says, repent. <laughs> now, why is this so powerful, though? Here's the kicker. What god did they worship in Nineveh? The fish god. <laughs> they worshipped the fish god. And so their god coughs up a man that comes and tells them to repent. Now, I think God had all that in mind when he chose Jonah. Because he wanted to speak to these group of people in a way they'd be most likely to hear. And they would only be most likely to hear, I think, if Jonah was coughed up from a fish. <laughs> so in other words, it was, it, it was to his advantage to see 
choose somebody that would resist. Exactly. And I think he chose him on that purpose. Yes, he chose Jonah because Jonah was suited with his personality. Because it wasn't that he didn't trust God. Jonah trusted God. It was that Jonah's heart was filled with hatred for the people of Nineveh. He hated those people. And he wanted them to die. And so Jonah was battling between his hatred for those people and his willingness to follow what God wanted. So it wasn't that I don't believe you, God, I don't want to follow you. It's that I would rather die than do anything to save those people. <laughs> and in the end, we see that after, after God re, re, remits, when they repented, and Jonah says, see, I knew it. I knew you wouldn't do it. You're a God of love. You're a God of kindness. You're a God of grace. I just knew you wouldn't kill him. I knew it. I knew it. And he was all miserable and unhappy about it. So I think there's a tremendous lessons taught in that story. But again, God uses foreknowledge, knowing people's character. So other examples, though, from Scripture, how about King Saul? God, God chose Saul, didn't he? Yes. Now, in Saul's way, did Saul ultimately turn out the way God wanted? No. No. How about uh, the rich young ruler? No. He, did, he didn't turn out right. The religious leaders in Christ's day. So what seems to be the key to whether someone is ultimately used by God for God's glory or not? Their willingness to be used. Yes, their choice. The willingness of the individual. And if you want to be used for God's glory, then all you have to really do is be willing. To be willing. God is willing. He wants us all to be used in His cause. What limits God's usefulness in, for, in, for us in His purpose is our willingness to be used. All right. Um, in the bottom section there on Monday's le- Sunday's lesson, it says... By most standards, John the Baptist's life, and especially his death, would not have made him someone the world would call successful. What should that tell us about the difference between God's ideals and the world's? And so just very quickly, because I really want to move on to some other things, the difference between worldly values and success and godly values and success. Worldly values are about fame, fortune, power, position, success. Self-exaltation, self-promotion, self at the center. And examples in our society today, valedictorian, blue ribbons, gold medals, first place, winning sports events, national championships, job promotions, titles. When we make these things the central focus of our achievement, we make this our heart's goal. Now, there's nothing wrong with actually doing well if your heart's goal is to glorify God as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you are noticed to be ten times better than everyone else. But when you make the heart's goal to achieve these as number one, then we have shifted priorities in an imbalanced way. Of course, disciples in Christ's day, biblical example, vying for first place amongst the the disciples. Uh, Jewish pride in their temple, seeking to be head of the table, wanting Christ to take David's throne and throw off the Roman yoke, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. And then today, also... Gossiping, slandering, rumor-mongering, hurting other people's reputation, tearing people down. God's principles, values. Selfless love, kindness, patience, goodness, gentleness, wisdom, care, concern, regard for others. Examples in the Bible. Serving others, volunteering, giving of self, time, money to benefit other people. Letting others go first, seeking to excel in order to glorify God. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, including Judas. Joseph forgiving his brothers. David refuses to raise his hand against Saul. Remember? Okay. Paul gives himself for God's cause. We see this other principle here, this other methodology, this other thing to value. And of course then today, instead of gossip and slander, we, pra- we protect the reputations of others, even the reputations of our enemies. And we see that in Christ's life where he wouldn't expose Judas 
if you remember, where the men who brought the woman caught in adultery, Christ would not expose them for the frauds that they were, even though he knew all their sins. And Christian principles don't, are completely different because why would he not do that? Because even though they were there to kill him, what, what did Christ want for, for them? Healing. He wanted to save them. He cared for them. And so how can you connect that? Well, just imagine your own son or daughter was coming to do something against you. Would you want to hurt your own son and daughter? Or would you want to somehow reach them with love to redeem them? And so ultimately, Christian principles are concerned for the other person because we love them and want to heal them. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Somebody read the first two paragraphs in Tuesday's lesson. The angel who appeared to Zechariah alluded to Malachi's prophecy and applied it directly to John. Jesus himself confirmed it. If you are willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. Elijah stands tall among the great prophets of the Old Testament. He called on King Ahab and the people of Israel, who were steeped in idolatry and apostasy, to return to God and reform their ways. The test on Mount Carmel, where he stood up for God against the pagan prophets, is one of the watershed moments in the entire Bible. And then in Malachi 4, Um, Verse 5 and 6, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the heads of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So there's this prophecy about the great and dreadful day. Is that referring primarily to Christ's first coming, or is it referring primarily to the second coming, or both? Both. Both. Okay, so it's going to be applied again. What does it mean? Prepare to meet God. Is there a war going on on this planet that is essential of a cosmic war? And, and what kind of a war is this? Not war against flesh and blood, blood, but principalities, powers, and rulers. Hearts and minds of people. Okay, so some people use the word spiritual. And, and when you use that word, it means... The hearts and minds. Hearts and minds, yeah. You remember 2 Corinthians 10 through 5. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. They have divine power that demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument, pretension that sets itself up against. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. This is how we wage war. And then in Revelation 12, 7, there was war in heaven. Remember? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and the angels fought back. You know that word war in the Greek? is polemos. Polemos is the Greek word we get the word political or politics from. Now, what kind of a war is a political war? War of words. War of words. It's a war over ideas, concepts, loyalties, winning hearts and minds. This is a kind of war. Is this a war that's going to be fought primarily with guns and knives and tanks and nuclear weapons? No. And so when this war draws to a conclusion, what will be the focus of the conclusion of this war? God. Picture you have of God. God, the picture you have of God. This is so cool because let's read out of Revelation 16, 12 through 16. Somebody read that for us, Revelation 16, 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Phraates, and its waters dried up to prepare the way of the king from the east. And then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. And they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And then they gather the kings together to the place that the Hebrews call Armageddon. 
Oh, Armageddon. You notice here we have a, a battle that talks about to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, uh, Malachi said, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Do you think these are talking about the same day? Maybe? Don't know? Well, we just talked, we got done reading that the war began was a political war. Paul says the war weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish arguments, pretensions, and everything that sets us up against the knowledge of God. Do we think that this war, which is a spiritual war, war for hearts and minds, will suddenly transition and become a war over physical armaments? Or is it going to stay a war over hearts and minds? So when the Revelation is describing this battle of Armageddon, is it describing a time when people and tanks and countries come to a particular point in the world and they start blowing each other up and nuclear weapons go? Or is it talking about the culmination of the war that began in heaven, where all hearts and minds are brought to the great day of decision? Well, let's see if we... Protestantism, you believe it. Yeah, let's, let's see if we can't flush it out. We're talking about what the Bible teaches, though. I agree. Let's see if we can't flush it out even more. Let's see if we flush it out even more. So let's talk about this Bible text here and see if we can understand some of the imagery here. Maybe we'll start with Armageddon first. Armageddon. Armageddon is interpreted in multiple ways, but it seems to me that there's two interpretations that have application if you see this problem from a great controversy perspective. If you see the problem began in heaven, that we were part of the solution, that God created this earth to, to reveal truth, that, that the war spread to this planet, and that the war has been going on over the nature and character and government of God. If you see it from that perspective, there's two potential imp- interpretations that have application to Armageddon. Well, the word in Greek, Armageddon, is a combination of two Hebrew words, and you find their application in Isaiah 14, 13. And this is about Lucifer speaking. This is Lucifer in heaven when his fall it says, I will send to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. That phrase that's interpreted in English, mount of assembly, are the two Hebrew words translated into the Greek, Armageddon. Okay, so he wants to sit on this mount where all the intelligences of all the universe are assembled. The assembly of intelligences is where he wants to sit, Armageddon. And then, the other way to understand Armageddon is the couple of the Greek words that mean mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo was the city on a small elevation on the plain of Jezreel, which, looming right over it, was a range of mountains called Carmel. Mount Carmel right there at Megiddo. So you put the two together. Do you see any light here putting two together? This great assemblage of all the universe, the Mount of Assembly, at Carmel. And what was happening at Carmel? What was the question at Carmel? And so let's look at some other assembly. We'll come back to that. Euphrates. Euphrates is the river that ran through which city? Babylon. And in Revelation imagery, what does Babylon represent? Confusion. Just confusion? Or confusion specifically of what? Confused systems of worship. Isn't that what it represents? The systems of worship that oppose the truth. Babylon. Okay, the confused systems of worship. Euphrates is the river that brought life to Babylon. And Cyrus... Interesting, we talked about Cyrus, is the one who diverted the river to enter Babylon in order to capture it. And so it says that the, the, the Euphrates will be dried up. Bible imagery, so we have this, this false system of worship 
Euphrates, waters represent the peoples that give. Remember, you know this text. And it's dried up so the kings of the east might come. Who do you think the kings of the east are? Don't you know that you are priesthood and king, kings and priests? It's those final messengers of God at the end of time which come with the final message through the confusion to lighten the world. And notice how we know. It says, um, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he will walk naked in his shame. What do you think that's referring to? What kind of garments do you think it's talking about here? The character of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Just out of Zechariah chapter 3, take away his filthy garment, see I have taken away your sin, put on him in rich robes, or the other parables that Jesus talked about, the wedding feast, or it says in Revelation chapter 3, buy for me the, the white robes that uh, and, and the gold, tried in the fire, remember? I mean, the metaphor is the same. Have the character of Christ reproduce in the heart. Putting it all together, bringing everyone to the great day, the battle, the battle of Armageddon. I see the imagery is talking about this final, and, and it goes right back then. Oh, we didn't talk about the unclean spirits. Uh, coming, the free frogs came out of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. What does the dragon represent? Satan. Well, certainly, ultimately, we're at Satan, and, hit, and then his form of, of, of worship would be either paganism or spiritism. So it represents the false systems of worship of pagan, paganism and spiritism. The beast represents... Papal Rome. Yep, and this false prophet represents false Protestantism. So we have this, this conglomeration of, of systems all misrepresenting God and distorting his character. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, it talks about concerning the day of the Lord, don't be alarmed about prophecies supposed to have come from us saying that the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, a man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sits himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Think about that. The man of sin, this rebellious force, sits himself up in God's temple. What do you think that means? Did he go into heaven, into the heavenly temple, and, and throw God off his throne in heaven? The minds of people. Yes. So again, we have this false idea. He sets himself up in our minds with false pictures of God that we believe the lies. Now, can we look at history of mankind and see that after the apostolic church, that the human race, by and large, bought into a gross distortion of the picture of God? We call it the Dark Ages. I mean, think about how the minds of men were darkened by this, this ugly imagery. And if anybody wants to get it de depicted, there's a movie put out by, I think it was produced by the Lutheran Church, Martin Luther. And if you haven't seen it, it's a wonderful depiction of the, the beginning of the Reformation and what Martin Luther was dealing with and how dark, I mean, it just brings graphically home the sickness of mind that was going on in these religious circles. It just, it almost makes you want to vomit it so sick what they were putting upon people. In the image of God, they were putting upon people. So back to the Elijah and the Elijah message. What was the issue in Elijah's day? In Elijah's day, what was the issue? What was the question? Bowing down to false images of true God. Yeah. Then to worship who is God. If Baal is God, worship him. If Jehovah is God, worship him. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. I mean, isn't that the issue? Which God you prefer, make a choice. 
And the two gods were exposed. It was bringing the things at Carmel to a head. No longer just preaching around the, the corner here and there and the two different prophets going before the king and the other prophets coming in and telling them a liar. It, wasn't just, it was actually bringing things to a point of an ultimate conclusion. Isn't that what the Battle of Armageddon sounds like? That everybody is being gathered to a great and powerful day when everyone will be brought to a point of decision? In John the Baptist's day, what was his message? Repent, repent, baptize, prepare to meet your God. Was it calling people to a decision? Yes. Ty Gibson wrote this. It says, Armageddon will not be a military battle in the Middle East over the possession of land, but rather a spiritual battle in human minds between true and false pictures of God. It will be a, a worship war, not a martial war. God's people will completely vanquish all untrue images of God's character. Armageddon is the end-time parallel to the battle of Elijah against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The issue of Elijah's showdown was the true identity of God. That was the issue of Elijah's showdown, the true identity of God. His God was placed in contrast to the popularized picture of God being promoted by the false prophets. The question urged by Elijah was, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Choose the lie that bears God's name, or choose to believe the truth about God. Just as Elijah's war was against the worship of a false image of God, so Armageddon is a battle to rescue hearts from false pictures of God by magnifying his true image revealed in the self-sacrificing incarnation, life, and death of Jesus Christ. Have you saw Armageddon in that light before? Does it not make sense? Does he see a purpose of a people at the end of time to present an Elijah message? A message to call people. And jumping then on to to Wednesday's lesson, which was going to be a continuation, the next step, connecting John the Baptist to this. Yes? Before you leave Tuesday, um, Matthew 17, 11, which is referenced to that first paragraph, but which isn't read or isn't referred to, it talks about Elijah is to come and to set things all straight. And so we often jump to um, John's message being something other than that. To set things straight. What is it that needs to be set straight? We do. The truth about God, where does it need to be set straight? Worship. In our minds and hearts. I mean, when Adam sinned, what was the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation needed to fix? Was there something now offended in God's heart? Was he now wrathful? Was he now angry? Was he now, uh, his, his, his dignity was impugned and, and he, now, he now has rightful wrath that has to be assuaged and Christ needed to come fix God's attitude so he would be forgiving and gracious. Elijah did call the false prophets. Yes, he did. <laughs> Why was that the case? You brought it up. Why was that the case? Why do you, do you notice that prior to Christ's coming, you see God acting repeatedly to put people in the grave? Did, did Elijah kill them or did the children of Israel kill them? Elijah instructed the children of Israel to do it. Yeah. Okay. And who instructed Elijah? God instructed Elijah. 
Right. Okay? So God instructed Elijah, Elijah instructed the people, and the people killed the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, but, but in the Old Testament, do you see, in the Old Testament, many places, God putting people in the grave. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, 185,000 Assyrians, firstborn of Egypt, Korodath and Byron, the platoons that come to arrest Elijah. I mean, multiple places, uh, Uzzah. I mean, we can go through lots of places. God is constantly, seems like, repeatedly putting people in the grave. Bam, bam, bam. Lots, lots, and lots of people take these stories and say, see what a wrathful and vengeful God. And if you don't obey Him, if you don't submit to Him, if you don't follow Him, He's going to do that to you too. Do you notice, however, after Christ's death and resurrection, the human race became perfectly obedient to God and there was never any more wickedness on the earth, right? And so there was no more need for God to ever act in those ways. And so that's why, since Christ, you notice, we don't find God acting that way since Christ rose, do we? Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment, because they actually are not the same thing. People think they are, but they're not. You don't find the Bible saying God struck them down. Right. You don't find it. No. What you find is that they were confronted with the sword of truth. In, 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 Isaiah, in Isaiah and in um, Jeremiah, it talks about the Lord will slay the wicked with his powerful and awful sword. Of, sword. The sword, he will slay them with his fierce and vengeful sword, or whatever it says. And then it says in Revelation 6, 19, that the, that the rider on the white horse comes with a sword in his mouth. Who's the rider on the white horse? Christ. Do you think he has a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No. No. What comes out of the mouth? Truth. Well, words, but in the case of Christ, he only speaks truth. So in Christ's case, the word that comes out of his mouth is truth. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the word of God is a two-edged sword, sharp, two-edged sword, living and active, dividing bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And so the word of truth pierces through minds that live in darkness. And when you come into the full presence of unveiled truth, what happens to a mind that hasn't been healed when it comes to the full presence of unveiled truth? Why did Christ veil himself when he came incarnate rather than with the glory he had with the Father before his incarnation? Why did he veil that glory? He would have destroyed humanity. He would have destroyed humanity because he hated them, was angry, and didn't want to save them, or because unveiled truth coming into the mind of someone who has not been healed results in death. And so what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They walked in, and Peter spoke the word of truth. If you look, read the context, the word of truth, and as soon as the word of truth was spoken, they lied to the Holy Spirit, bam, truth, boom, dead. So, why okay. is so, in the Old Testament, so back to the question. Old Testament, you see God actually putting people in the grave all over the place. Since Christ's resurrection, you don't find that at all. Why? That's, about, that's, what we're, that's the question. I want you to first notice. I want you to first notice the, the difference. Do you notice the difference? Or, and, and is it because that since, since the resurrection of Christ, man has been so good and gracious and kind, there's been no wickedness, no evil, no depravity, you know, no, no concentration cramps, no killing fields, uh, you know, none of that stuff going on? Or is it because there's some other reason? Well, what was happening? What was God, as soon as man fell into sin, what was the thing told in Genesis 3 that God's plan was going to do? He said that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Genesis 3, as soon as sin happened, there was a promised Redeemer. Isn't that what happened? As soon as man fell into sin, the promise of the Redeemer was given. And so, in order for this race to be saved, in order for their universe to be secured, in order for sin to be brought to conclusion, in order for the universe to be cleansed and purified, was it necessary for Christ to come and complete his mission? Yes. 
then what you find in the Old Testament is God actively working. You find there's two powers, two antagonistic powers of battle. Powers of God, the forces of Michael and his angels, warring against Satan as his angels, and Satan is working to shut down the avenue through which the Messiah will come. And so we have this point in time when there's only one righteous man left on the entire earth. Only one. Everyone else is on Satan's side, won't even communicate with God, won't deal with God at all. One righteous man, his name is Noah. And God says it's time to act. I, I, I would prefer not to, but all will be lost if the Messiah doesn't come. So he acts, and how, what does he do? He puts them to rest in the grave. Is this eternal loss? First death. Or will they all be resurrected again? Either resurrection of life or resurrection of damnation. They're all coming up out of the grave. And when they come out of the grave, they come with the same train of thoughts that they went into the grave. And you've heard the metaphor before, but God basically put them in time out. He took them uh, out of time and suspended them in time. That's all he did. It's like freezing someone in cryogenic storage. That's what he did with everybody that he put in the grave. Because he resurrects them and they come out with the same train of thoughts. So he kept it open there. Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, where did the children of Israel establish themselves? And what and did they in without Sodom and Gomorrah around, did the children of Israel have trouble with fertility cults? Without Sodom and Gomorrah around, did they struggle with fertility cults and, and sexual perversion and stuff like that? How what would have happened to the children of Israel, you think, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have been left right next to as their as their closest neighbors? Okay? God took them out of the way, put them in the grave. They're going to be resurrected with the same train of thoughts to complete. Now remember at the end of the thousand years when this resurrection occurs. The new Jerusalem is on the earth with the gates open. The gates are open, not closed. Why do you think the gates are open? Anybody that wants to can come in. Demonstrating that God is not the reason people are outside the city. People outside the city because they don't want to be inside the city. And even though the gates are open, no one comes in. No one comes in. You might have a loved one out there, and you'll be on the walls. Tell them, and by the way, the walls of the new Jerusalem are... are transparent. They'll be able to see right through. You'll be able to wave your loved ones. Come on in. It's great in here. They still won't come. And so in the Old Testament, the purpose of God acting in all these places is he is working to keep open the channel through which the Messiah would come. And once God chose Abraham, see, God promised the Messiah, so Satan didn't know who it was going to come through, so he's working to get everybody on the world on his side, and there was only one righteous man. The flood comes. Then after he chooses Abraham and his descendants, do you notice that Satan begins targeting his efforts at these people? And the focus becomes now the children of Israel. And he's working constantly to destroy the children of Israel, constantly. And God is constantly working to discipline, to put in grave, to whatever he has to do to keep open the channel. Once the Messiah finishes his mission, God doesn't have to do this anymore. The mission is complete. Blamed on, not caused by. There's a big difference between blamed on and caused by. Yes, in fact, we have insights that tell us that the disasters are actually caused by Satan. Satan is the source. And the reason for that, you can base this, this case out of the Bible, God sends his agencies to hold back the four winds of strife, to hold back the principalities and powers of darkness, to put a hedge of protection around his agencies and his people. The Holy Spirit dwells in the Spirit Temple. And as hearts and minds of people on earth harden to the Holy Spirit, and there's less and less minds for the Holy Spirit to dwell in because people won't allow him in. The Spirit is slowly withdrawn from the earth. Satan gets greater and greater power over the earth. And then in the book of Job, when God's protection was withdrawn, you see that Satan brought storms. He has power over nature as God lets him or withdraws his restraining hand from him. 
And so we see this. So do we see now God acting one way in the Old Testament, not because he's vengeful, not because he's angry, but because he's working to keep open an avenue through which the Messiah will come. And he does not inflict the penalty of sin. So once Christ came, it wasn't necessary. The mission has been completed. The Messiah has come. Yes? So does he change his mind in Revelation 20, where fire comes down from heaven and consumes No, he does not change his mind at all. What is the fire that comes down? Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15, He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who dwells in the fire, not the wicked. And so if you look through Scripture, you're going to find that God's presence is a consuming fire. When Moses talked to the bush, the bush burned, but it didn't get consumed. When the temple was dedicated, they couldn't go in because the brightness of God's presence was there, but the temple didn't burn down. In the new heaven and the new earth, in Revelation chapter 22, it says there'll be no need for the sun to light the place because God's place, presence will be its light. Hebrews chapter 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. See, this lie that Satan has got everyone believing is the place you don't want to go. And the place you don't want to be is a place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence, which the righteous will be transformed by as Moses coming down off the mountain 40 days in God's presence. His face is radiating this fire. Did Moses have third degree burns? No. Was his whiskers burned off? No. No, notice this fire that consumes is not a fire of combustion. Now, it's very strange, though, because this fire doesn't burn up buildings, doesn't burn up bushes, didn't burn up Moses' face, but it says in Thessalonians that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The fire that was just read there in Revelation comes out and consumes them. So we have a fire that destroys wicked, but doesn't destroy all this other stuff. This is a very strange fire, isn't it? Well, this is because this is the fire that is coming to consume sin. Now, what is, the, what is my Bible made out of? Paper and leather. What, what, is, uh, what is the table over here made out of? Plastic and other things, okay? What is sin made out of? Selfishness. Notice that. It's made out of its attitudes, beliefs. This is a fire that's not coming to burn physical material. It's coming to burn sin, destroy sin. So, as she said, it's people. So if I cut off your big toe, will I have a piece of sin? But if you destroy me... See, sin is exactly what's said. It's an attitude, an idea, a belief, a methodology. And at its root, it has two elements. The two elements of sin are lies. Satan is the father of... Lies. lies and selfishness, which is the antagonism to love or unselfishness, which is the element of God's kingdom. And so if you have lies in your head operating in your mind and this particular thing comes in, what is it that comes in and totally will destroy lies if it comes in? Truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of? Truth. And if you have selfishness, if this comes in, it actually cleanses the heart from selfishness. What is it? Love. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And thus on Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, they saw tongues of fire. fire. Did anyone get hurt that day? No. This is the fire of God's very presence. You read about in Song of Solomon. It says that the fire of God's love, can, that thousand rivers cannot quench it. And so when God comes and the fires come out in Revelation, it is God finally unveiling himself back on this earth as it was before sin. And the fullness of his truth and the fullness of his character and the fullness of his love envelops the place. And those who have hardened their minds in lies, who have hardened their minds, hearts, and selfishness, are in agony as they come face to face with themselves and the wickedness of their own character. Example, I have patients who were abused, molested as kids. 
And uh, as we deal with the therapy, at some point, we always deal with forgiveness issues and so forth. And, they, and many of them will say, I just wish my dad or I just wish my mom could just admit what they've done. I just wish they could, could just acknowledge how, how wrong they've treated me. And I ask them. And some of this stuff, abuse is, I can't even describe it. It's pretty graphic and pretty grotesque, some of the abuse that my patients have been through. And I asked the, the, the patient, I said, if your mother or father were to acknowledge, were to admit today what they have done to you, what kind of emotional experience do you think they would then begin to go through? Think about it, folks. If you had to admit that you molested your three, four, five, six-year-old child, did horrible, grotesque things to them, what would happen inside you to have to actually accept that truth? Guilt, shame, self-disgust, self-loathing, self-hatred. It would be an awful, tormenting experience, wouldn't it? And so this is why they don't. And this is denial. This is distortion. This is refusal to accept truth. And so one day when Christ comes, uh, the, more, the more evil we do, if we don't repent and deal with the truth now and experience healing and transformation, then we deal with the truth then. And the truth will burn through all the lies we've told ourselves. And what will it be like for those people to actually then have to come to, not gradual gradations of truth that we can handle and be healed with, but full, unveiled truth about your own character and how you've lived in contrast to God's true character. What will that be like? Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. It will be agonizing, it will be tormenting, it will be overwhelming. And this is why some suffer longer in the flames than others. Because some have a much higher burden of lies and evil to burn through. And it's burnt through with the truth. And you put the pieces together, we can understand the fire being rained down. We can also understand that God is not the source of death, sin, their own condition. And here's a truth that maybe you've heard me say before, but I'll say it again. You can never avoid dealing with the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with the truth. If you deal with the truth here and now on this planet, you will deal with it under the umbrella of God's grace, God's goodness, God's spirit, God's forgiveness, God's healing agencies, and you will experience regeneration, transformation, cleansing, renewal, and eternal life. If you refuse to deal with the truth here and now, you will deal with the truth then, but it will be too late for healing and regeneration, and instead it will cause agony, suffering, and death as the truth burns through the lies of your own character that has been formed by refusal to deal with the truth now. And it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they are, the wicked are destroyed because they did not love the truth and thus be healed. That's the reason. Yes? Well, we've got to explain then why the Bible says every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Yes, and you bring that up. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And some people say, well, see, isn't that Repentance. No, that is not repentance. Do you remember a certain president that we had that was finally forced by the weight of evidence to acknowledge that he had actually had relations with a particular woman he before said that he didn't have relations with? Now, what forced those words from his mouth? Evidence. The evidence and truth that could no longer be hidden and denied. Did that mean he had changed his ways? No. No. And that is the difference. Yes, the evidence which can no longer be hidden because God, the source of all truth, has unveiled himself. All will acknowledge, we forced from their list by the weight of evidence, but it has not resulted in a heart change. And then they rise from that moment and they hate the fact 
that has been exposed, and they hate the one who's exposed the truth, and they want to destroy the source of that truth so they can hide in their lies again. And that's when they assault the city, and that's when the word comes out, close the gates, and the gates are closed, and then the fire comes out. So, okay. Um, let's, let's move on. <laughs> Hopefully that answered all those questions. <laughs> Let's move on because we want to close up with, with this deal about John the Baptist and connect up the Elijah and what our, our job here today at the end of time is. John the Baptist's message was a message, message of, well, they call him John the Baptist. John the Baptist is what they call him, right? Okay, baptism was closely associated with John's work and the work of repentance. And Jesus actually gave a command. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But I want you to think about what that means and how we generally deal with what baptism is in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've made a ritual. We go around and we dunk people, and we say the right words over them, and we think we've fulfilled this commission. No. You know how the word baptism came into being in the English language? Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. And the, word, the Greek word baptizo simply means to immerse. It means to immerse. And when the translators were translating into English, they, uh, they came to this word to be immersed, and they realized that the king had been sprinkled. He wasn't immersed, and they were afraid to actually translate it immersion for fear that they might be beheaded because the king was sprinkled. And so they made up a new word, and we'll just call it baptism and leave it kind of blurry and let people think it means whatever, it whatever they want it to mean. And so baptism can be sprinkling, baptism can be immersion, but the word actually means immersion. So now, let's, let's take it back then and say, go and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? In Hebrew culture, the name means character. Our commission is to go and immerse people in the character of God. That is our mission. So to go around and convert people and dunk them saying the right words is what Satan would love us to do. Because if our hearts, minds, and characters are not immersed in the character of God, we aren't reborn, we aren't recreated, we take the name of Christ on ourselves and then go out and live Satan's principles and misrepresent him. It is only by immersing the being, the individual, and the truth about God that we experience transformation, regeneration, of character. And so that Elijah message, this last day message, is a group of people rising up to go out and present the truth about God in such a powerful way that hearts and minds will be immersed in the truth in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost, in the character of God. Thoughts or questions as we close up? Baptism is only a symbol of what's already happened. Yeah, there's a real baptism, a real immersion, and I'm talking about the real thing. I'm not talking about the symbol. I'm talking about there's a real immersion of the character, the mind, the heart into the character of God. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I will write my law on their hearts and minds. Remove the heart of stone. Put in the heart of flesh. All this is talking about the same thing, immersing the being back into the truth about God. And redemption. I'll just close on redemption. When you think of redemption, we often think about some price being paid. But I'll tell you, uh, this morning I was reading, I was reading in Patriarchs and Prophets, and I was reading about the fall of mankind and the Garden of Eden and how after Adam and Eve left the garden, that the garden was left on the earth for them to come and, and see every day. Imagine the pain, the agony, the distress of heart to have to see what was given up and see the leaves falling in the world... The Garden of Eden was protected from all that. 
Christ came to redeem Adam's failure. He came to champion humanity. When you watch the Olympic athletes in America and you're cheering for those Olympic athletes and every Olympic athlete has been humiliated and they've been caught cheating with steroids. Every U.S. athlete has been, has been booted out, doing all this horrible stuff that we would just be ashamed of and the whole America is just down in the dumps. But there's one, one athlete who has never cheated, never done anything wrong and he goes over there and wins gold in every event. He's redeemed America. Hasn't he? See, Christ is our champion. He has redeemed Adam's disgrace. He has redeemed this creation. He's redeemed us in his human experience. He demonstrated the truth about God's character, but also about God's wisdom in creating us to start with. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent Christ to reveal the truth, to win the day, and to win us back to trust. We pray that you will send your spirit to take what Christ has achieved and make it known to us, reproduce it, regenerate in us your character, immerse us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we will go out of here shining lights for you to take this Elijah message, the message about your true character to this world, that people will make their decision, choose you this day whom you will serve. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.